this, my friends, is Chelsea Sodaro, and she is coming home to be your brand new champion. Debut performance, incredible Chelsea Sodaro. That is a clip from October 2022, when triathlete Chelsea Sodaro, who is today's guest, became the Ironman world champion, winning the race in Kona in her first time competing in it. And there's a few things in that clip that you don't see that are important to Chelsea's story. One is that immediately after crossing the finish line, Chelsea embraces her husband, Steve, and her daughter, Skye, who she had only 18 months before winning the race. What you also don't see is that around the time of that Ironman and in the months before and in the months after, Chelsea was battling intense OCD and anxiety. And that is a lot of what today's episode of Farewell is about. The things you don't see that are often behind the things you do see. Because in the world of performance, we talk a lot about success and achievement. And maybe not as much about the difficult things high performers are having to struggle through or work through to accomplish those successes and those achievements. We celebrate the toughness, I'm using scare quotes there, and maybe not so much the vulnerability. And I'm very grateful to Chelsea because today she is very vulnerable and goes very deep, not just on the things you'd expect to hear from an Ironman world champion, but a lot of things you might expect an Ironman world champion to not talk about or keep in the dark. So to go along with all the tools she has to problem solve on race day, how she thinks about setting goals, how she thinks about mantras, what her pain cave is like, she also goes into important aspects of her story that go beyond the race. The way women and mothers in sports have to work much harder to get the same support, considerations, and care as their male counterparts, the mental health crisis she went through, and how, despite being an Iron Man, wearing the mantle of the toughest of the tough, she still felt stigmatized by a world that doesn't really know how or struggles to talk about mental health issues. And at one point in today's episode, Chelsea expressed a sentiment that I very much appreciate. She said, I may be a world champion, but I'm still very much a work in progress. I think that is true for all of us. And I can tell you that after talking to Chelsea for an hour, hearing her discuss her journey will definitely help you in your own, no matter what you're struggling with. Here is Ironman world champion, Chelsea Sidaro. So first I want to cast back and ask, what's the first athletic or sports memory that, that stands out to you? I, uh, um, started ballet when I was very young, like as you, you know, you throw little girls into ballet and I loved that, but I actually spent, um, five years in Michigan and my parents were not that into the ballet and they were not into like taking me to the ballet during the snowstorm. So I don't really know how long that lasted, but when we moved to California, I immediately got involved in, um, summer, soccer league as you do and summer swim team and my parents actually met in uh, at the rec sports department at san diego state so they are super active athletic people and being outside and playing outside was just a part of our family life so i went on my first backpacking trip when i was four or five we went camping all the time my dad uh, was an avid marathoner and is from Boston. So he was always training for the Boston Marathon and I would go on my bike. I would ride alongside him. Um, so it was just like being outside was part of our ethos. And do you remember what you, like, do you remember athletes or events or things that inspired you as a kid? Like what did you see as your athletic future? Who did you look up to? I didn't really know that you could be a professional athlete. I didn't know that as a woman, you could be a professional athlete when I was a kid. I, you know, am a child of the 90s. So I, you know, idolized Mia Hamm, maybe, but I didn't really understand that being a professional athlete could be, you know, someone's career path or livelihood. And honestly, that didn't come into my radar until I was in college. What happened in college? Who did you, what, what occurred to you? Well, I was really lucky because I ran cross country and track at UC Berkeley. And the assistant coach when I started out there was a woman named Magdalena Boulay. And she, I started Cal in 2007. And in the spring of 2008, she made the Olympic team. And I think she was 32 years old. It was her first team. She made her first Olympic team, 32 years old, and had a two-year-old at home. And 
I mean, I got to have a front row seat to her preparation. And, you know, I knew someone who was qualifying for the Olympics. And at the same time, Alicia Montano was my teammate at UC Berkeley. And she was a senior when I was a freshman. And she kind of took me under her wing. I'm not really sure why, but she was a multiple-time national champion and ended up being an Olympian and world medalist, kind of talent of a generation. And so I had these two women that I got to see every single day and pick their brains and kind of follow them around. And that's been so formative in my development. I didn't know at the time, you know, what I was witnessing, but now in retrospect, they were really laying the foundation for me. Um, And I think in my psyche to know that some of these things were possible that I would ultimately pursue. Mm. And you said you, so you went to Berkeley for, for running, right? When did you start, when did you discover running or a knack for running? I started running when I was in junior high school and I had some kind of immediate success. I was really competitive in my league and I was just very hungry to win. And I'm not totally sure where that came from, but I was ambitious and very driven. I actually quit though my second year of junior high school because I felt a lot of pressure all of a sudden and that Mm. became not fun. And I just went back to playing soccer and kind of put the running thing on the background. But I rejoined the cross country team when I started high school. And what was initially exciting was that I had friends. I immediately had friends who were juniors and seniors in high school. And I thought that this was very cool. So it was really more the social aspect that attracted me to running before, you know, the performance side. I quickly started to perform and had these series of breakthroughs and started to realize, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this thing. What do you think the pressure was that you were feeling that in that second year? Was it like that you were good and all of a sudden there were expectations around it? I think so. I am a perfectionist. In fact, in first grade during my parent-teacher conference, I'm told my teacher told my parents, Chelsea is very hard on herself. She's a perfectionist. She really like wants to be excellent. And, you know, that can be very difficult, which is so bizarre for like a a teacher to tell the parents of a six-year-old, right? Um, But that started, I guess, to translate or, um, yeah, show itself in my athletics was was running joyful for you back then or was it like sort of torturous in the sense of wanting to to be perfect i don't think it was that fun initially i think i just had this immediate success and i was you know competitive at the pointy end of these junior high school races and you know when you get second or third the next progression is to win and i had this big breakthrough at the end of the season where I I was competing against a girl who I'd gone to elementary school with. And I don't know if you've experienced this in sports, but for whatever reason, like you always want to beat your friends more than you want to beat anybody else. Or like you want to beat your teammates more than you want to beat anybody else. So I really wanted to beat, her name is Julie Perry and she's lovely, but I really wanted to beat Julie <laughs> Perry. <laughs> and during the final race of the year, I finally beat her. And I th- I pushed myself so hard that I threw up all over my kit. And I was very proud But I don't know that it was, you know, proper type one fun. And I still, I still, I don't, this is maybe like a little bit controversial for my triathlon community, but like triathlon for me isn't type one fun. It is like the challenge that I'm after. And I really love pushing myself and finding out what I'm capable of. But, you know, when I'm out doing an Ironman, I'm not like, this is so awesome. I'm like having such a great time. So maybe I started to experience that in junior high school. And as you know, a 12-year-old, I thought, wait a second, I am not really down for this situation. <laughs> I like that you characterized throwing up on yourself as not type one fun. That, yeah, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. But no, so many similarities. My best and oldest friend was a guy who, his name's Dan, and also a great guy. And we were enemy, mortal enemies when we were like five through eight, because we'd go to this after-school program called Gym Burners. And we were just relentlessly competitive. But at some point, we realized, oh, if we team up, we will, uh, we can be better that way. So uh, I get it. Yeah, nice. Do you think you're still using like 
things you learn from or lessons you learn from those years of running or those early years of sports? Absolutely. I think that that period of time is really about exploring my, you know, work ethic and commitment. And when I found running, that was the first time where I really found that drive and motivation from within with soccer or with like the various musical instruments that I played, my parents always had to like nag me to practice. And I like to go to the performances and I like to go to the games, but I didn't really enjoy like the process of preparing for those things. But with running, it was different. You know, I would just get out the door on my own because it was all about like my own goals. And that intrinsic drive was a really cool thing to explore at that age. I feel so lucky to have found something that I am really passionate about and that I like really love so early in life because I think that it takes a lot of people a long time to find that. And I never thought that that would translate into a career, but it's been such a gift to have had the opportunity to pursue excellence in this for so long. And you said your dad was a marathoner, right? Yeah, he was. Do you, do you remember anything he taught you early on? I do. He has been quite involved in my athletic career. Um, in some ways, has been you know so amazing, and in other ways, is very challenging for our dynamic. But when I I was like five or six, I would ride my bike with him for all of these training runs. And we would do this loop in the UC Davis Arboretum. I grew up in a college town called Davis. And there was this little, there was this hill. Well, we called it the big hill. And he would have to push me up the hill on every time we went out. And I remember it became this big goal of mine to get up the hill myself. And I just kept on working on it and working on it. And, you know, he would have to push me a little bit less after a period of time. And finally, I did it myself one day. And I just felt this incredible sense of pride and accomplishment. And um, it's so powerful to work really hard for something and finally achieve it. When did you do your first triathlon? You go to school for running and then you do prof- you a professional runner for a while, right? And were at the Olympic trials? I was, yeah. I had a, um, kind of a rocky professional running career. I won a couple of national titles right after I graduated from college. And I thought, I'm I'm doing it. I've made it. I may, actually made like $12,000 in a race. And I thought, I'm set, you know? <laughs> you know? It's good money though. That's good money for running. I, I mean, I yeah, like. I was like, yeah. you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And I, like I can pay my rent for quite a while now. This yeah. is great. Um, but I was plagued by a ton of injuries. I had a really hard time kind of finding the right training group and environment to, to thrive. And I had the worst possible day on the most important day at the Olympic trials in 2016. I didn't make the team. My contract was up that year and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. And I had become a fan of triathlon from afar husband and I were watching the the Rio games from our couch and he looked at me during the triathlon and he said you should try that I think you'd be really good at it and I just laughed I thought it was the most ridiculous idea but you know as you do I just got totally obsessed I read everything I could about triathlon you got a bike built up for me I started calling people that I knew kind of involved in the sport and and ultimately moved to San Diego to join this professional squad before I'd even done a triathlon Wow. And I know it was in retrospect, it was totally nuts. But sometimes when you have, and I think that's what I do like to share with people, right? Like sometimes it's okay to, to bet on yourself and like go for the thing. And, you know, in some ways I have like a lot of privilege that I felt, you know, I could, I could fit. I, I could fail. You know, I was in a position where, um, you know, I had like a great education I didn't have, um, student debt and yeah, what's a year out of my life to just go explore if I can do this thing. Um, so I did my first triathlon in the spring of 2017. 
and that qualified me for my professional license. And I competed on the ITU circuit, which is like the Olympic track for triathlon. It's a, it's a different kind of racing than what I do now. You're on road bikes and you can draft off each other. It's kind of a criterium style bike portion. Um, and I had some success. I won, um, I won a world cup, which is kind of like, which is a fairly high level. Um, but I was living away from my husband cause I kind of always had to be on training camps and he needed to work. Um, and I was in living in a squad environment in my late twenties. I was not having a lot of fun. So I quit triathlon for a couple of weeks. I thought like, it's time for me to figure out my life and, and get a real job. I was talked into trying non-draft triathlon, which is like Ironman racing where we ride, um, time trial bikes or triathlon bikes. They're super aerodynamic and we go really fast and we don't draft off each other. So the idea is that you're like really finding out your own limits of how fast you can go across a bike run. And then you ended up, we'll get there, but you ended up winning, I mean, Ironman in 2022. Um, but you had a wild 18 months before that. I mean, you had uh, your daughter, Sky, 18 months before you won the Ironman, right? Is that timing correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did having Sky teach you about or change the way you thought about training? Because I imagine in a way it crystallizes like what you actually need, like what's most important because you can't, there can't be any like anything superfluous in your training when you have a kid you're also raising. Yeah, absolutely. And navigating childbirth and child rearing, becoming a mother has been the most transformative experience of my life, certainly. In some ways, it makes things very complicated logistically. And, you know, I don't sleep as much as I used to, and I don't have as much like freedom of time as I used to. But in other ways, it's made things very simple because my priorities are very clear and I don't, like you said, I don't have a lot of extra like time and space for like distractions and, and noise. And when I was actually, I'm going to say I was like, I was in my third trimester of pregnancy, my coach and I were on a call and he said, once this baby is born, you need to remember to make the most important thing, the most important thing. And I know that it will be really easy to get caught up in training and returning to racing and work, but like the most important thing is your child. And I actually have that written on my mirror because it resonated so deeply with me. And he kind of said it, we've chatted about it. He kind of said it as a throwaway comment, but um, it resonated very deeply with me. And I come back to that frequently. Um yeah, to make the most important thing the most important thing. I don't think that as humans, we're capable of doing a lot of things very well. And at this stage in my life, I think I'm capable of doing two things well, which is being a mom and pursuing professional sport. And even with those two things, sometimes I feel like I'm dropping all of the balls in the air. Um, but like my priorities are pretty straightforward. I'm curious how that mantra helps you can you think of an example of a time where you've like thought about it or used it in terms of it just shifting your perspective in a way that you found helpful? Yeah, I'm very obsessive and detail-oriented and controlling about my training and my equipment. And I want things to be like just the way that I want them. And the reality is that I'm not always in control of those things, right? Like, some days I like just don't feel that good when I wake up in the morning and I don't crush my training or like maybe a meeting didn't go how I wanted it to or a race didn't go how I wanted it to. But that mantra really allows me to like step back and gain some perspective. And of course, I want to be like the best athlete that I can be. And I want to win because winning is super fun. Um, but at the end of the day, like my kid is the most important thing to me and I want her to be healthy and happy and joyful. And I want to be like a present joyful parent to her. And so I guess like the mantra reminds me like to put my 
priorities in place and to like assign value to things mm. appropriately. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely. Another thing that you said that jumps out to me in there is you said, you know, we we aren't capable of doing a lot of different things well, which I totally agree with. And I think we're similar ages. So I think maybe it's as you get to be our age, you start to realize that. But do you remember when you realized that? Or do you remember the process of like, did you used to think you could do it all and had to let that go? I'm curious how you came to that that realization. Yeah, I think for me, that realization has come through motherhood. There's so much pressure on moms and women to be all of the things, to all of the people. There's this expectation that we're supposed to be selfless all of the time. And that's just, it's just unfair and, and not reasonable. And so I think, yeah, like as I've navigated becoming a mom in our culture with all of these expectations and, and demands on women while also having um, these pretty like ambitious career pursuits I've had to realize that like, I cannot be doing like all of the things all of the time. And one of my favorite things to say when I like speak in forums like this is that as like working moms, we, we can have all of the things, but we shouldn't have to do all of the things. Like we're capable of being amazing moms and partners and, career women, but we need like the appropriate help and support. Which is not always given needless to say. That's right. It is not always <laughs> given. I, I have learned. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look back though, so, I mean, when you look back on that eight, like that 18 months, you won that Ironman and you were competing against people who didn't have to contend with pregnancy during their training. And you've also been open and we'll get in this a little bit, but struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety. So you have this pretty wild, turbulent 18 months leading up to the win. How do you explain the fact that you were able to go out there and win? Now that I have some distance, when I look back at that time period, I like, I do not know how we did it. My husband started Fire Academy when we were seven or eight months pregnant and was in said Fire Academy for the two, first couple months of Sky's life. Um, so, like, paternity leave was not a thing for our, our family. Um, and then, you know, he was, like, on... He was starting his new fire job. He was doing his new fire job, like, during that whole 2022 season, which meant that I was a single parent for two to three days out of every six days. So it was, it was gnarly. And we had a ton of like childcare challenges. It was like virtually impossible for us to find reliable childcare. So um, I'm like very proud of that accomplishment and like how we got there. I think that when you're a new parent, you kind of have this crazy, like, adrenaline where you learn to function on less sleep and you find things within yourself that you didn't know were there. I think, um, yeah, it would be really easy for me to say like, things are so much harder for me because I have a new baby and I had to go through pregnancy and I have all of these like related, you know, um, like physiological challenges because of that. But I think there are some advantages too. And that, um, like we talked about, things became very simple for me. It's like what my goals were. And I think my life became so chaotic with training 30 hours a week and also having um, a baby that things didn't fluster me as much. Like during that race in Kona in 2022, it did not go perfectly for me. I lost my nutrition a third of the way in to the bike, which is like a pretty big deal for most athletes. And I thought like, oh, that's a bummer. Um, moving on, how are we going to problem solve? You know, you know, whereas I think before having a sky I would have freaked out and it would have been such a crisis. Whereas now sometimes when things happen to me, I'm like, I'm so used to things going wrong. Um, I'm just better at, at problem solving. And 
you know, like when you have a kid, they get sick or your child care falls through or things come up where you can't stick to your plan. And, and that's what Ironman racing is about. Like it never goes perfectly. It's always about how you adapt and, and problem solve. And I think oftentimes like the person who's able to do that best is the person who, who wins. Um, yeah, I don't know if I did I answer your question. Yeah, definitely. It's a great okay. answer. <laughs> yeah, it was a terrific answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, to that point, I know a mantra that was important to you during that Ironman was yes, 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 which is relates mm-hmm. to what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it's been really cool how that has kind of um, taken off in my in my triathlon community. When I go to races now, actually, the fans on the sideline will yell at me yes 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 so it's very cool but that developed when i was actually in kona during race week for 2022 my my daughter was in this toddler stage of just saying no to everything and so we would dance with her in the living room and say yes 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 and it got stuck in my head for the whole iron man so to every like pedal stroke and every stride on the run, I was saying, yes, 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 yes. And it is this like mantra that reminds me to lean in when things get really hard and to commit to doing the the hard things we talk about. My daughter and I say to each other, like, um, we can do hard things. Or when I'm struggling with something like, I don't know, like building a tower of blocks in the living room, Sky will look at me. She goes, remember, mama, we can do hard things. And, um, I think triathlon and endurance racing is such a metaphor for, for life and in so many ways that things will inevitably get hard and things will go wrong. And it's about how we like lean in and embrace those challenges. I love that. She says that to you. That's adorable. She's pretty cute. (laughs) How did, how did the feeling of winning the Ironman compared to what you thought it might feel like. What was so cool about that race is I had never gone, allowed myself to go there to really dream of winning that race on that day. I thought it was my first time competing there. So I thought maybe in a few years after I get some experience, like this could be on the table for me, but it's very, very rare for athletes to win that race on their first try. And so it was like this, pure joy that I think it will never be quite the same again. Of course, like I believe I can keep on when I believe I can win it again, but that first time where it's so unexpected and, um, you know, nobody was picking me and I just got to be out there with very little, you know, very little external expectations and just focus on, on my process. It was, um, Mm. yeah, like the best day. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of like when you're talking about first getting into running and like loving it that first year before you had any external expectation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I'm in this phase now, right. Where I've had this big success and for me and for other people, like anything less than that is a failure in some ways. And I think that it's okay to say that, but it, it really changes like the game and, and, or it can change your approach when the expectations are so high. So I feel like really lucky that I got to experience it in that way that first year. And now I'm like navigating a new, a new experience for sure. I I imagine, I, I know this is probably a hard thing to articulate, but I'm curious to know what the inside of like your pain cave is like, if you can, if you can describe it when you're, when you're out there. Like in my brain? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, do you surrender to it? Are you using mantras? Are you like, yeah, I'm curious yeah. how you get through it and what it feels like if you're visualizing anything. Yeah. I have paid attention to my self-talk quite a bit. And I noticed that when I'm having a good day, I'm I'm really in training and in racing. I'm very kind to myself, very encouraging. You know, if I like I'm not perfect or I mess up a little bit. It's fine. Everything is good. You're doing great, Chelsea. And on the tough days, I'm like, you're the worst athlete. Why are you doing this? Why do you do this to yourself? You don't belong here. Like this really like negative spiral. And I'm not sure what comes first, right? Like, but either way, it's like a perpetuating thing where 
you can either feed that positive side or you can feed the negativity and the negativity never takes you to where you want to go. But it's loud, right? I mean, it can get loud. Yeah. It's so it's it's like that's the thing that often has the megaphone in my brain. It's like who gave yeah. why is the negativity on the loudspeaker? Give someone else the aux cord. I know, same. And I had um gosh, I really had to face that this year in Kona. I had an amazing preparation, but um I got a little banged up before the race and it didn't play out how I wanted it to, especially on the bike and 112 miles is a really long time to think about how much you suck and how things are not going like how you want. And then I still had a marathon to run. And so I could decide, right? Like, do I want to just drop out and kind of succumb to this negativity? And like, no one would probably really blame me or can I like try to have an attitude adjustment and just do my best at my best with what's in front of me and with the tools that I have now. And I got, I got six this year in Kona and the result is very disappointing to me and not what I went there to do, but I'm so proud of my, um, like my effort and my persistence. And that's taken a lot of growth. I think even like six months ago, I wouldn't have, performed the way that I did there. Um, and that is all to say that like, I may be a world champion, but I'm very much a work in progress with mm. all of this. Mm. I think we all are right. But you not only got six, I mean, you got six after to your, to your everlasting credit. And to your point about, you could have given up. Weren't you in 20th after the bike? I think it was around 20th. Yeah. yeah so, it was around 20th. Yeah. And, um, I I would I ran the first like 10k of the marathon in pure anger and disappointment. <laughs> and then rage I just run, you know, rage run. it was a full on and then I kind of got over myself and just took it one mile at a time as you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um you've been very open about your struggles with anxiety in the days and weeks and months after the 2022 Ironman. Do you remember the first time that you noticed something was like a wrong or a miss? Yeah, I I do. I started to develop this particular brand of anxiety when I was pregnant. Actually, I started to be really fearful of being in enclosed spaces and was like particularly scared of being in a mass shooting. And so I, I was at the swimming pool that had a chain link fence around it. And all of a sudden I could not be there anymore. I was, um, like scanning around the pool to see who was coming in and out. And at one point I just like had to book Mm. it out of there. Mm. Um, and so I didn't like really think a lot. I didn't think a lot of that. I just thought like, yeah, that's kind of a reasonable thing to be afraid of when like you're pregnant and you live in this country. Um, or I was feeling like protective right over my like baby. Um, and when my daughter was born, that start, it started to get way worse and she had some feeding challenges when she was born. And so I had to be in the doctor's office like every other day for many weeks and I just had an excruciating time being in the waiting room. Like it was terrifying to me to be in the waiting room. Um, I had a really hard time going to a grocery store or like um, any sort of, yeah, like public enclosed space. And I actually, I tried to get help because I thought like, this is not good. That I'm so afraid going out in public. Um, this is not normal probably. So I tried to get some sort of like therapist on the phone through my insurance. And that proved to be virtually impossible. We were in, you know, spring of 2021, still in the thick of COVID. Um, Mental health professionals were totally overwhelmed. Um, And so I gave up on my insurance and I got referred to this um, EMDR specialist. Mm. And I was like met with a lot of judgment which I think is the last thing that somebody needs when they're kind of in the thick of a mental health crisis. And I, I just didn't feel like she was kind of really willing to work with me in the space that I was at. 
and I was paying a ton of money to see her. Um, I'm trying to get back to racing as quickly as I can so that I can get back to make, making money. And like, um, you know, we all have bills to pay and, um, I like had to go to training camp. So I said peace to her and I thought, I'll just deal with this myself. Like I'll meditate and I'll, yeah, I'll just kind of white knuckle it. Um, and I did that for a really long time. I did that. Um, until after Kona of 2022. And what does make me sad is that I was at the awards banquet with my family after I won Kona and I looked to my husband and I said, um, how are we going to get out of here if somebody shoots up this banquet? Uh, and like, I just should have been so present, right? And enjoying the moment with my family. And instead I'm like, how are we going to get out? And I'm like looking for exits and stuff. Um and things really progressed after Kona. I never really got to take like a mental break. I had all of these sponsor obligations and um, all of these opportunities that you get when you win something big. And I didn't feel like I could say no to anything. So I was like constantly working in an overdrive and that anxiety really, really started to get out of control. And when you're so anxious like that and feeling so out of control, like, I was like very distraught and that became, and you know, you start like judging yourself for having these thoughts. And so that is where like the depression came in. I felt like very hopeless and I wasn't sure. Um, yeah. If this was just like my life now. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry. It sounds very heavy to have to carry. It's, it's kind of a mind fuck, right? Cause like I have struggled with similar things and the thing that's that I try to articulate to people who haven't, struggled with it is like and i don't want to compare our experiences because i think that can be reductive but just like you can tell yourself that you're having an irrational thought but the fear feels so real that your body convinces your mind that it that the thought is like that it's real even if you know in your rational mind it's not and like that for me i've had my things my obsession like i've had obsessive thoughts about certain things like um I had a big thing with germs for a while. And it's like, you know, rationally that, you know, it, it's maybe it's not, it doesn't quite make sense, but you feel that tension and fear and anxiety in your body. And it's like all your alarm, it's like a five alarm fire. And it's just really yeah. hard to, to, to live with that. No, absolutely. And even if it seems irrational or seems irrational to other people, it's very real to, to you. And like, that's what matters. And it manifests in very physical ways. Like I, um, you know, felt or, and I do when it creeps up on me because I'm not like fixed forever. Right. Like, although I have, you know, had the opportunity to like, um, get treatment and I have more strategies now and like an anti-anxiety medication, um, this is something that I'll probably deal with the rest of my life. And for me, it's been about like accepting that and learning tools on how to like deal with this. But even so, right? Like it, for me, it manifests in this like tightness in my chest. Yeah. Like I can't. Um, and that's very scary. Yeah. yeah. What tools have you, do you have to sort of manage it now? Yeah. So I got referred to this amazing um, psychiatrist who's actually here in Reno. And she, has worked with a handful of Paralympians. And so she has some experience working with athletes, which has been really cool. I think um, in the past, it had been so easy for like therapists to just say to me, well, just like stop training. Like that's stressful or stop, whatever. Like you don't need to put pressure on yourself. And she understands like, no, this is like my livelihood and I need to find a way to deal with this like while navigating my job. Um, but she prescribed like a really low dose of an anti-anxiety medication with, for me, um, which I was very resistant to. I think there's so much stigma around SSRIs and like meds like that. Um, so even like taking that was part of my like treatment. So she, she, so she diagnosed me with OCD actually. Um, and a lot of people just think of OCD as somebody who like, you know, taps on the taps the tap on the doorknob a lot, or um, like washes their hands incessantly. And OCD can can be like just an inability to control your intrusive thoughts. 
And, and that's what it was for me. And now in retrospect, as I look at my life, I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense for how I've experienced the world and dealt with things. And I, I used to just label it like my stress. Like I was just like stressed out. <laughs> um, but anyway, I've learned that it's a little bit more than that. And there are strategies that I can use to deal with that. And, and those strategies are mostly about creating um, space between my thoughts and um, myself. And like, I know um, Brad and Steve talk about this quite a bit about how like you are not your thoughts and you cannot control like what thoughts pop into your head, but you can control how you react to them. And if you internalize them or if you just um, dismiss them. Um, And one of my strategies, which I haven't talked to anybody about this. um, So it's a little crazy, but one of my strategies is that I named my brain. And, um, and when I not first crazy, heard, not crazy. Well, when I first heard about the strategy, I was like, um, that is effing ridiculous, but it's proved to be really helpful for me. Um, and I named my brain Regina, like the mean girls. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and like when I'm having the intrusive thoughts, I just go like, sure, Regina, like, whatever, or like, could you please stop being a bee, Regina? Um, and it's like, yeah, creating that distance between what pops into your head and and who you actually are. Yeah, it's that, that idea that your thoughts can lie to you is a pretty, it's profound, it's helpful, I've found, and it's also destabilizing, right? Like, oh, well, if I'm not the CEO up there, who is? Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you found any like helpful strategies to deal with your, um, I have, I think like for me, I think for a long time, I wanted to, I really wanted to get away from it and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and learning that you actually have to be with it. Like it's just Mm -hmm. here. Um, there's a good, there's something I heard that was like, you have to invite it in for tea. Like your, your intrusive Mm. mind, you have to like, if it knocks on the door, you're not, you can't be like, go away. You can just be like, all right, come in. You can hang out. Like I'll make you some tea and you're going to be here with me for a little while. I'm still running the show. I know that you're not running the show, but I'm not going to try to push you away. Cause I know that there's a mantra, like what you resist persists. And so Mm -hmm. just not trying to fight it and just being like, okay, it's there. Um, but like, yeah, I, I completely, it's very resonant what you're saying. I mean, cause I, like I have had intrusive thoughts, for instance, to meet your vulnerability with some vulnerability that like I would be driving and I would be afraid that I hit someone and I would have mm-hmm. to turn the car around multiple times and go check. And like, mm-hmm. that's not a rational thought. And, yeah. but it's also to your point, it's not about touching things or germs, which I've also struggled with. This is like, you can't control your mind. And you feel yeah. like the fear feels so real that you have to create some sort of ritual or process to like metabolize that anxiety. And it's, it's terrifying. It is so terrifying. Um, and the checking man. Yeah. Checking. It's Constantly. tough, right? Because it just becomes this like horrific cycle of perpetuating the problem. Yeah. And it's hard to break that. One thing that I'm curious to hear your experience with is like, for me, exercise has been a really useful tool, again, to answer your question about tools and recognizing that your thoughts sometimes lie to you. Because for instance, I'll be running sometimes and I'll be like, you're going way too fast. And then I'm like, well, that's not a real thought. And I'll keep pushing through it. And I, and it's interesting because in some ways for me, exercise has become like the place where I can play with those difficult thoughts. Because mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable playing with them in everyday life because I am so hypervigilant and, and my anxiety gets so turned on. And yet when I go exercise, it's like, okay, this is a place where we can actually experiment with how, how real and valid our thoughts are. And I'm curious if you've had similar experiences. I imagine there are a lot of times in the pain cave where it's like, you can't go any harder. And it's like, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> Shut up, Regina. I can go a little bit harder. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm confronted with that quite often. And especially when things are hard. Um, you know, I was in this real hole around this time last year where 
I was so distraught over like these intrusive thoughts and in the thick of this anxiety and depression that I like, I couldn't get on my bike. You know, I like couldn't get out for a run. Um, and that is such a meditative space for me. It's, it's this weird combination of like it being my work, but it also being this place where I feel most like myself and the most free and, and the place where I can, especially like in training where I can to echo your point, like experiment and make, make mistakes and explore. Yeah. Like the limits of my mind. Um, and so I've had, like, I think I've had a lot of, a lot of breakthrough there and also it like for this race in Kona you know like I think that if I hadn't kind of sought help and treatment for this mental health stuff I wouldn't have been able to do what I did in Kona this year you know where I got sick like I would have just been you know so distraught and so consumed by these thoughts that I would have pulled the plug whereas now like I have a lot of practice um in confronting and confronting those things. I'm curious what it was like for you to be in the wake of winning the, the Iron Man, which of course, you know, comes with this, it's, it's just an external marker of success and like strength, right. And powering through. And I'm sure you had a lot of media appearances when you were going to this experience of acute anxiety and OCD and having sort of like struggling internally and then having to wear this external mantle that, probably created some tension, I would imagine, for you. I've spoken to Brad about this, actually. And what made it so much worse was this dissonance between how I was, um, like, representing myself externally to what I was feeling inside. Mm -hmm. And feeling like now that I had this title, I had to really, like, look like I had my stuff together and that I was in a good place and really confident and I had all the answers and I was kind of like labeled this super mom um, when I was like in the thick of this mental health crisis with a toddler. Um, and, and the New York Times article was actually so freeing for me in a lot of ways. Like it was very vulnerable and very scary, but at the same time, just like being honest and open about these things um, was very freeing for me too. Mm -hmm. Like my goal with being public about my uh, challenges has always been like decreasing stigma and hopefully making it a little bit easier for someone to reach out for help if they're, if they're going through these things. But it was also a gift to me. Um, these things thrive in, in secrecy. And, um, and, you know, like, I, I don't think that everyone needs to be super public about their mental health struggles if it isn't, if it, if it isn't, um, the right thing for them, but like, as sort of a like public figure in my, you know, niche profession, it was, it was like quite, yeah, liberating. Yeah, no, I, I commend you for that. Cause I do think, yeah, it's, I think totally case by case, some people don't, don't, they don't want to share that get it. It's very vulnerable, but it, it, it like for people who maybe have struggled with similar things that you've struggled with, it's at least when I've experienced it, I can be like, I'm, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. And if I tell anyone yeah. about this, they're going to think I'm crazy. So to hear another person share it, and you're like, Oh, they, they're, you know, you, you have that sort of kindred moment and it's like, Oh, that does make it easier. And it, yeah, it's like mold, right? If it stays in the darkness, it just kind of festers. Um, totally. And I like have been shocked by some of the people who have reached out to me who are like way more successful and like super famous. Right. And they're like, I struggle with the same things too. Mm -hmm. And actually um, this is my superpower, but I have to keep it in check and I have to like get proper help and treatment. But um, yeah. And I really think um, I've, I, I've talked about how much I struggle with triathlon and endurance sport being such a selfish pursuit um, you're just like out training, swimming, biking, and running for like many hours. And I, I wonder what that's accomplishing for humanity and for the world. Um, but I think that, you know, we're here to help each other out and being honest about this has allowed me to have like real connections with, with other people. And, um, I think that's the whole point of living anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's beautiful. I agree.
Do you remember the first time that when the clouds for, like started querying or you felt like, oh, I can see the sky again. This this dark storm cloud is not like you said, it's never goes away. Right. It comes back just like yeah. the weather. But when you first were like, oh, there's the sun and the blue sky again. This feels nice. I do. I do. I I um, I can like point to the day on my calendar when I started the um, I take Lexapro and I started mm-hmm. my Lexapro. And when I could train again. And I was like, I don't know, two weeks. It takes like a couple of weeks for these things to like do to do their thing. And I can like point to the day in the calendar when it started kicking in. Um, and I remember talking to my psychiatrist saying like, like colors just feel brighter to me. And I'm appreciating kind of the simple joys in life again. Um, things had been so dark for me that I couldn't like enjoy my daughter and that was ultimately the impetus for getting help is that I thought like, man, this time is very precious and I'm not able to enjoy my kid. Um, and so it was, it was more about like enjoying the smaller things and really like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It wasn't for me about like winning again at that time or like being a good athlete. It was about like being a decent human being. And I felt like I wasn't able to do that when I was in the thick of the OCD. And I think when you're in the thick of a crisis like that, one of the hardest things to do is to get the help in the first place mm-hmm. or to like be brave enough to ask for help. And then there are all of these other logistical societal barriers to actually getting access to that. Um, and so the more that we can like decrease the stigma of, of asking for help. Yeah. Um, yeah. The better off we all are. Do you feel like it's changed your motivation at all? I mean, it sounds like Sky was the biggest thing that changed your motivation, but I'm just curious if you look back to when you were running as a kid and you think about how you compete now, if outside of Sky as well, there are, like if your motivation has changed. Absolutely. I, it's so funny because I'm, I've said this a few times, um, I'm in such a better place now after getting six than I was after winning, huh. which is which is very bizarre. You know, you'd think it would be the opposite. Um, but I think that one of the reasons that this got, got so bad for me is that there are a lot of barriers for, for women and female athletes to get like the proper support that we need. And when we're so over like stressed and, and overworked, the mental health stuff really piles on. And so a lot of my like work and advocacy work has been about getting moms and women more like access to things like childcare and um, like something as trivial as a lactation station at a race or a workspace seems like such a small thing. And it kind of is like an easy, small thing to do, but it like makes people feel welcome and it, takes away one of those barriers um, for women so they can feel like comfortable and welcome in a work space or race environment. Yeah. It's a small thing that has such an outsized carries with it such an outsized connotation, right? Cause it's like, it is a small thing to have a lactation station there, but then to not have it suggests something about how we value women that is like far greater than the, actual difficulty of getting a lactation station there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and of course that's just like um, such a small example, but uh, yeah. I, I partnered with this organization called Ann Mother this year. We did a big uh, bike giveaway with my sponsor Canyon and um, the proceeds went to Ann Mother and they give grants to postpartum female athletes. They advocate in Congress for like maternal rights. They bring lactation stations and um, free childcare to events and races. And they're also working with companies to help them develop uh, maternity and, and family protection because like, believe it or not, in 2023, it's not always standard practice for um for companies to have that. So yeah, it's, it's tricky because like, um, and I think maybe like there's a double standard in in this, in some ways that like as female athletes, um, we have to win. And then we also have to like have something else that we, um, like champion 
and and care about and those two things can be um yeah like in conflict sometimes and Mm -hmm. for you know like my cause right um it's a very vulnerable thing to have to say like no actually like you need to be paying uh, we need equity and we need like um fair pay and we need um maternal protection especially in this industry that's so dominated or has been um so dominated by men so yeah it's all a work in progress to wrap up here i'm curious what like as a as someone who knows suffering well and i'm speaking more specifically about like physical suffering and what i mean doing hard things i guess and yeah and understanding sort of the grace and the growth that comes on the other side of suffering how you think about teaching sky about suffering it sounds like you're already doing a little bit with you know we mommy we can do hard things but it's just it's, it's an interesting sort of paradox to me of like being a parent and I, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine never wanting your kid to suffer. And then also doing this thing at an elite level and understanding the importance of suffering and how you think about imparting lessons to her about, about like doing hard things. Yeah, for me, it's less about encouraging her to suffer or seek that out and more about helping her, helping to facilitate her journey and finding something that like really lights her up and makes her feel alive. And frankly, I hope that is not triathlon because it's a really challenging sport and it's, it's like not an easy way to live. Um, But I do feel so much privilege in the sense that I like have so much passion for the work that I get to do. And I appreciate that not everyone has that, that, some people just like have to clock in nine to five or many people and they live for the weekends, right? Where like I'm living it every single day and and I love it. But um, I don't really have like strong opinions about what that is for her, whether it's, you know, a sport or musical theater or science or whatever, it, whatever she finds, but just creating space for her to explore um, the things that she's curious and excited about and maybe she'll be yeah, lucky enough to stumble across something that she's good at and also really loves to do. That was a wonderful answer and is a perfect example of why you are a parent and I'm not. I'm over here being like, how are you going to teach your kid to suffer? And you're like, well, I'm more just trying to help her find something that lights her up and fills her soul. <laughs> I mean, I think um, like it's not supposed to be easy, right? And I don't like hope that she just like pursues a life of ease. But I think that I think that that intrinsic motivation gets you so much farther than any sort of like external push from a parent or authority figure or or whatever it is. And so, um, yeah, like my husband and I have both been you know, really competitive athletes and, and we know what that life is. And I think that if she, you know, like comes to us, right. And wants support and something like that, we will be there, but um, we will certainly not be the loudest parents on the sideline of the soccer field. I think that is a great place to end. And yeah, Chelsea, I appreciate you so much for sharing your time and your insights and your vulnerability and going there. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Chelsea's competing this weekend in a New Zealand Ironman, so we are sending her all of our very best wishes and good luck for a great race. Some things I've been thinking about marinating on since we finished recording that episode, the idea of keep the most important thing, the most important thing, the advice that Chelsea's coach gave to her and she turned into a kind of mantra, and how for her the most important thing was her daughter Sky, and how having her created some differences to her training and created some difficulties, but also allowed her to really zero in on what was most essential and what was most important and allowed her to direct her focus and her attention to those things and get rid of all the superfluous activity and how having some limits can actually force you to relentlessly prioritize in a productive way. I also loved her mantra, yes, 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 which was partially inspired by her daughter, Sky, and just this idea of whatever happens during a race, saying yes to it, saying yes, thank you, yes, please, and just dealing with it. 
That also ties into how she talks about problem solving and how the superpower of a really good triathlete, as is the case with a lot of endurance athletes, as is the case with a lot of competitors and performers, is the ability to problem solve. And how becoming a mother actually helped her become more of a problem solver and helped her in turn be a better solution finder during triathlons. I thought that was a really interesting tidbit. And then moving into some of the mental health stuff, the idea of having a space between yourself and your thoughts and allowing yourself to not be so reactive and see your thoughts a little bit more objectively. And Chelsea actually uses a psychological tool called self-distancing where she labels her thoughts as Regina. And that gives her a little bit more space from her thoughts and gives her a little bit more perspective. I first came across that idea in Ethan Cross's book, Chatter, which is all about how to turn down the negative or self-doubting voice in your head. So shout out to Ethan Cross. And then lastly, her idea that she said she is not fixed, that she's still a work in progress. Again and again, we hear this idea that things come in cycles. There are cycles of growth and cycles of rest. There are cycles of being physically and mentally well and cycles of maybe physically and mentally struggling and just trying to stick with the habits and practices that help you feel settled and stabilized so that when a season of difficulty comes around, you can still stay on the path and give yourself the best chance of handling that difficulty. So that is all for today. Good luck to Chelsea this weekend. Thank you to her for sharing her story. Thank you to the entire Farewell and Growth Equation community. That includes, obviously, all of you listening. It also includes Brad Stahlberg, Steve Magnus, Chris Douglas, Nate Meckler and John Summerford. We'll be back on Monday with another episode. Until then, have a great weekend and be well. <laughs>